Welcome to the Realized Gains Podcast, a guide to real estate investing. Join our co-hosts, Jordan Lee and Stephen Tran, as we interview a diverse group of real estate investors, both amateur and professional. Our goal is to help you understand that anyone can invest in real estate. Tune in to hear creative strategies and learn from both our mistakes and our successes. You can find us where you love to listen to podcasts, on YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com. As I was finishing residency, uh, my dad became ill, and I'm an only child. And so I was sort of forced to decide what I was going to do about either taking over the portfolio or continuing medicine. And I decided to do both for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, So I took over in 2011. um, And at that time, I was pretty lucky. I was very lucky, but we had um, an in-house attorney that worked for us full time. Um, and an analyst who had been working for us for like three years. And then we had a pretty uh, well-seasoned property management company at that point. Oh, wow. So you guys were a pretty big company. They were pretty established, yeah. yeah. So when I stepped in, the president, our current president of property management had been working for our company for already like 15 years. Um, So we were really lucky that we had longevity there. Um, But um, I ended up taking over and then working um, in a low-income clinic as an ophthalmologist for a period of time. And then eventually it was too much, so I stepped back. Welcome to episode 39 of the Realized Gains podcast. I'm Stephen Tran. I'm an Oregon and Washington realtor, and I am an investor in multifamily and single-family homes. And I'm your co-host, Jordan Lee. I'm a mortgage lender based in Portland, licensed in nine states, and I I invest in single-family homes. And today we have a really great interview for you. We we interviewed a a physician turned um, real estate mogul, uh, Ashley Hayden. Yeah. I mean, eye surgeon. Yeah. So we had a lot of fun with her talking about her experience, uh, you know, basically going through the whole medical school residency, you know, practice, and then basically immediately switching as she finished. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, she's built quite the portfolio. Yeah. Huge portfolio in the thousands. Uh, a lot of experience buying, selling all over the, um, multifamily and, uh, commercial world. Yeah, and she gives us really great insights on, you know, going the office retail uh, direction versus going commercial residential and the, you know, the pitfalls and downfalls of that, her, you know, unique ways of basically, you know, validating whether a property is good or not, and then Mm -hmm. her thoughts on the current market. Yeah, so if you're interested in getting into the commercial and multifamily world, this is a great podcast for you. Hey guys, welcome to the Realized Gains podcast. I'm Stephen Tran. And I'm your co-host, Jordan Lee, and I'm super excited to introduce our guest for the day, uh, Ashley Hayden. Hi. Yeah, Ashley, do you mind just giving us a quick introduction, like wh- how you got where you are today, your, your story, what brought you to Portland, or, or I guess maybe you're from the area. Yeah. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to hear. <clears throat> sure. Um, so I grew up here. I was born here, actually. I'm an Oregonian native. Um, Rare breed. Yeah, very uncommon. Uh, all three of us, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, Salem, so I don't know. <laughs> close enough. Close enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was born here, raised here, went to high school, and then um, went to college on the East Coast, um, and had uh, a very sort of roundabout way of getting to where I am now. So um, 
I uh, went to medical school and finished residency as an eye surgeon. And as I was, oh, wow. yeah. Were your, um, were your parents also in, in that field or? No, no, just me. Um, and, uh, but my parents were running um, a growing commercial real estate um, okay. portfolio. So they started um, building um, their portfolio when I was like in middle school. Uh, and so the story there is my father was an attorney um, and um, the Resolution Trust, um, what's the C stand for? RTC Resolution Corporation. So after the savings and loans um, decline in the 80s, the government owned a bunch of mortgages and mm -hmm. then packaged them. So no longer previous to synthetic packages they had actual packages that mm -hmm. they auctioned off um, and a lot of people who are currently in real estate today got their start there because these mortgages were auctioned at for pennies on the dollar oh interesting yeah oh. so you could buy a package of mortgages but it would be any type of asset class so at one point this my, was like a real package of mortgage yeah like, you're saying. <laughs> like it a wasn't real just like physical a, a bond or something yeah no no, no real physical package today. and you okay, had wow. to have cash uh -huh. on the day that uh -huh. you got to the, if you were awarded, if you won the bid, you had to have cash wow. at the bank on that day. Yeah. <laughs> like a briefcase of cash. Yeah. <laughs> so your, your dad at the time, he was an attorney, was he, had he already been in real estate before? No. And was he like, oh, this is a fire sale. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, basically he could recognize a good deal when he saw one. Wow. He was a litigator in Portland. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, just um, partnered with a friend of his and so, my dad's friend took all the performing mortgages and my dad took all the non-performing mm -hmm. mortgages and um, foreclosed on those and then purchased and uh, then held on to the assets and okay. then went from there. So I was at home while my parents were like growing this company and, and he, um, he's bringing work home. They're talking about it. Yeah, talking I, strategy. yeah I feel like I knew about <laughs> like, you know, lines of credit and 1031 exchanges before, you know, I got my driver's license. Um, oh, so interesting. So, yeah. It's typical, like, not the home dinner table conversation. No, and I never really had the home dinner table conversation. <laughs> uh, my parents were um, uh, pretty driven, and I was, you know, brought up in that kind of environment as well. So, um, so they were building the portfolio and um, tried all sorts of different asset classes. We, at one point, had... Um, a sound studio in Burbank um, where they did Foley arts uh, and we had um, a retirement home um, not too far in like in Gresham, mm. uh, multifamily public storage, strip centers, basically anything that a bank had a business wow. loan on, um, we had, we like got as part of the package. And for the most part, we um, would just sell them mm -hmm. um, after, um, once the process of foreclosure had gone through and we became full owners and we would just sell it. But uh, if there was an asset that was doing really well and cash flowing well, then they would hold on to it for a period of time. Um, which is how they got sort of more focused in multifamily. Um, and so their first um, asset in multifamily was in a small town in Texas called Beeville, which at the time did not have a single um, traffic light. Uh, so um, they bought something like 30 units in Beeville, Texas um, as part of this RTC auction. Uh, and um, they recognized 
through ownership that multifamily was the best cash generator mm. of the asset classes that so they, they look, were. After foreclosing on a variety of different things, they're like, okay, there seems to be a trend here. This one's doing the best. Yeah, they found that they had the best outcomes in terms of a cash flow mm. um, uh, outcome metric. I mean, do you want to explain why? Because maybe they were like managing the property and raising the rents and then the properties were being appraised on that income approach? Or? I think... Um, Right. Well, I think a lot of them were not well managed at the time mm-hmm. of purchase, right? Because they were obviously in foreclosure. <laughs> so there was a lot of upside. But I think multifamily um, has, as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of, has a lot of benefits in that the leases are relatively short compared to longer commercial leases. Um, you have um, an easier rate. Uh, you don't have to pay as much for the leases as compared to office or retail in terms mm. of a commission structure or TIs. So you don't have a lot of upfront cash that needs to be lost. And yeah, eventually over time, we did end up taking um, the property management in-house. Uh, that didn't happen right away, but uh, over the years, they discovered that there was a huge benefit to having um, a owner-operator model, and so that's what we do now. So we have um, an owner and a property management um, arm as well. Okay. Um, so yeah, so it grew very organically, and um, you know, my uh, my mom tells a story about. They kept investing in Texas. It was a very business-friendly environment for them. And Mm -hmm. so she tells a story about how she was driving down the highway and a huge gust of wind pushed her rental car into a ditch. And, like, these three cowboys in cowboy hats came and lifted her car (laughs) out of a ditch. Um, But they traveled to Texas a lot when I was growing up. and but I oh so they they weren't doing it remotely they were they were they were going, going I mean they weren't managing it themselves but they were going a lot um, okay, and they started inv- uh, investing in a variety of other locations as well um, and then uh, when I finished my residency um, as I was finishing residency uh, my dad became ill and I'm an only child and so I was sort of forced with to decide what I was going to do about either taking over the portfolio or continuing medicine. And I decided to do both for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, So I took over in 2011. um, And at that time, I was pretty lucky. I was very lucky, but we had um, an in-house attorney that worked for us full time um, and an analyst who had been working for us for like three years. And then we had a pretty uh, well-seasoned property management company at that point. Oh, wow. So you guys were a pretty big company. They were pretty established, yeah. Yeah. So when I stepped in, the president, our current president of property management had been working for our company for already like 15 years. Um, So we were really lucky that we had longevity there. Um, But um, I ended up taking over and then working um, in a low-income clinic as an ophthalmologist for a period of time. And then eventually it was too much, so I stepped back. Um, But uh, so, yeah, I think I'm one of the few eye surgeons in the world of multifamily. Um, And one guy got too drunk and fainted at some you know, multifamily conference and I had to like Which is go and fairly common or I, I mean I don't it has it happened more than once, but they, you know, everyone was like, Ashley and I was like, Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll check so, his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll like check his pulse and yeah, call the paramedics and I think he just paint yeah, is it anyway, so I'm one of the few um physicians in the in the field that uh, you know, sort of at the uh, scale that I'm operating at. Um 
but yeah, we have, uh, so when I took over, I just sort of <coughs> carried out the rest of my um, dad's like initial vision and we talked about it for a little bit before he passed and um, just, uh, w he had positioned us very well. So in 2011, we had a fair amount of capital and um, actually ended up closing on a thousand units. We were sitting right at 2,500 units when I took over and added another thousand units in the first year and a half, two years. Um, yeah. So it happened pretty fast. And at that time we were invested in Texas, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, and Mississippi. Um, and then I divested out of Mississippi, um, and really focused on Texas. And then we added, um, Huntsville, Alabama in 17 and 18. So mm. now we're just located in Texas and um, in Alabama. Those are where our assets are. Mm. And so talk to us about markets. What what attracts you to specific markets? I've heard of Huntsville. We, I, you know, I actually had a flight scheduled out of there to go look at a new construction there and then COVID came and I canceled it. And <coughs> my buddy that went anyway, he, He's done very well in Huntsville. What I mean, what are what are your metrics, or how are you deciding on markets? Yeah. Um, so you know, Portland, born and raised, and our actually our offices are here. So uh, we have a sort of a little bit of a disjointed remote workforce. So the corporate office here in Portland has um, marketing, some marketing and um, uh, accounting, but. We have a tendency to really focus on the Southeast. That's always been, the Sun Belt Southeast has always been our um, driver. And uh, primarily it's a demographics thing. It's very landlord friendly. Um, mm. It- uh, So all the states that you're in are kind of, the le from a legality perspective, it's more landlord friendly. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so uh, it's, you know, um, especially when we're operating in that C space, we've sort of upgraded the portfolio to some degree, but um, when you do have a higher rate of delinquency, it's a lot easier to run your company if you're able to you know, process an eviction in a relatively um, rapid manner. Do you want to talk a little bit about the C, what that means C space for our listeners oh, who sure. aren't super familiar with um, yeah. grading a multifamily? Um, sure. <coughs> uh, so, uh, like everything else in multifamily, you have to take it with a grain of salt um, because everything becomes a marketing term. So mm -hmm. um, just be careful. But typically they um, will grade uh, any asset. So multifamily, um, retail, uh, office as an A, B, or C. And, and everybody uses that. And this is like for investors to look mm -hmm. at, right? So brokers and investors. Okay. Um, and everybody will use those A, B, and C letters mm -hmm. a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. There's always a little bit of grade inflation um, yeah. or deflation, depending. It, it, it's um, not, it's more qualitative. Than, than <laughs> qualitative. Like I painted the yeah. walls, now yeah. it's a B. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or like, you know, you talk to a broker in New York and they're like, well, this is like a, you know, B and it's like a 45 story fancy high rise. And then you go to somebody in, you know, I don't know, Duluth and they'll say, oh, this is definitely an A and it's like a, you know, barely two level sort of deal. So uh, typically the newer, the nicer it is. The A space, the more you know war, wear and tear, the more sort of workforce housing, then yeah. you have a C space. Um, but yeah. just remember that it's sort of market driven. So mm -hmm. um, you can only go as high as what's in your own market. Right. Um, so yeah, so uh, and 
you know, in addition to that, there's just been gigantic amounts of population growth, um, employment growth, both in Texas. And then I actually just had a family um, member move to Huntsville, and she was like, you should come check it out. And it's like 2016. And um, I... Uh, I just got a really good feeling. It ha there's a arsenal, Redstone Arsenal, which is a rocket base, which is where they do like mm -hmm. space camp. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's an outdated metric <coughs> that it has one of the highest PhDs per capita mm -hmm. south of the Mason-Dixon. So mm -hmm. um, Toyota has a campus there. It's got a relatively diverse population that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And um, especially for multifamily, what I really liked about it was that it had um, a somewhat transient high quality, pop, high income population. So um, mm. a lot of people were on three or four year government contracts. Mm. So while they could afford a home, um, because it's not, exp I mean, you guys would be, it's uncomfortable to think about how cheap homes are in Huntsville. <laughs> you can get a really nice house for like $250,000. But um, people didn't necessarily want to invest in buying a home and doing that process because mm -hmm. um, they, they weren't going to be there, be there for, for that years, long. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people I met, I think this is changing now, but a lot of people I met um, would be whoever had the contract, either the mom or the dad, was going to Huntsville Monday through Thursday oh. and then flying home mm -hmm. because the family didn't want to relocate for a short period right. of time, which is a exactly what you want in a multifamily. <laughs> yeah, yeah they're not there all the time. <laughs> they're not there all the time. They're, you, you know, they don't have like messy kids and pets and things. Right. Um, they're not moving in and out a ton of furniture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it was, um, that's been a pretty um, lucky investment for us as well. But, um, you know, when I first started, I did a lot of things differently from my, my dad and my family. <clears> and, and I, they used to sort of laugh at me because one of the things I wanted to add on my underwriting spreadsheet was how how many miles to the closest Starbucks and they all said like this is you know this was 2011 everyone was like you know looking at how far are you from like a municipal center how far are you from mm. like a, a post office or something and I was like I don't care like am Starbucks is way smarter than me. I'm not. <laughs> who goes yeah. to the post office? First of all, I was going to say, I have a friend who only buys uh, properties near Whole Foods. Yeah. And, yeah. Whole, and that was actually one of my other metrics was I said, I want to know what brand is the closest grocery store. So, um, and these were things that were definitely not on our underwriting radar when I first started, because I was like, look, if it's a brand that I've never heard of and that's the closest grocery store, like we're going to be in a little bit of trouble. Like so. a grocery outlet or something. Yeah. yeah or, <laughs> yeah. you know, Fiesta Mart where, down right. where I am. But, um, uh, so those were the things that, you know, those uh, were a couple of touches that I, I, I mean, now that's like common practice, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's like a saying you buy, you build or buy where Starbucks is, but that's interesting. Yeah, back in 2011, it wasn't a well, thing. Well, I mean, because Starbucks has done the research for their location, exactly, so you're right. basically banking off that they've made a smart decision where they're putting their stuff. That's right. I think there's been a lot more female <coughs> investors over the last 10 years mm. as well. I think when I started, it sounded like sort of a silly girl thing to do, um, and I was fine if they wanted to label it that. It worked out great. <laughs> 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 um, but, you know, the, a handful of times, um, if I had, you know, we ha and I had a really good system when we first when I first started I had an asset manager and, and our in-house attorney and we all had sort of uh, an equal buy-in in terms of like who won who voted for which property mm -hmm. we all sort of came together and so I would go visit a lot of these assets that were not close to Starbucks and it was really nice to see that 
almost every single time <laughs> I had my, my suspicions confirmed right. that that was not either a metro or an asset that I wanted to invest in. So, mm. yeah. I, mean, I would say, like, when Starbucks pops up, I mean, that means gentrification is not far behind if it hasn't started already. So, yeah, that's know. right. And when was the last time you lived somewhere that was more than three miles from a Starbucks? Yeah. It's exactly. been a while, yeah. I think that's I got two, college. like, within, like, three blocks. Of <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, those were a couple of things that I started looking <clears> at in, in – in terms of like flavors that I added to my ass, uh, my sort of take on investing, um, you know, we did also have a couple other non-multifamily assets. I had an, uh, two office buildings, a strip center, and some raw land uh, scattered around the country, and that was also a really good learning process for me. That I learned that um, it's a lot harder. And now, I mean, office is in a really dark place. Oh, but, I mean, with COVID and everything, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> even prior to that, there's a lot of headwind in terms of owning office because um, I just realized that it's a very uh, relationship-driven business um, in the in terms of getting the leases and getting the lease renewal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in multifamily, you can <clears throat> pretty much get a renewal with your residents based on just doing good business. Right, um, yeah. But you have to pay out this big commission and these big TIs. Um, and so while I think assets, I mean, commercial, particularly office, is probably going to come back out of this downturn, it does mean, though, that you're really dependent on those local broker relationships yeah. to be successful. So, you know, mm, I would interesting. Yeah. encourage anybody who is interested in office to get some, some scale in a metro instead of just buying a one-off investment where you can do that pretty successfully with multifamily. You can, you know, mm. all you have to do is put an ad on whatever you want, like Zillow or apartments.com or whatever ILS that you're looking for and you can rent out your apartment. But you really have to have these on the ground relationships with brokers. Yeah. And so if you can get three or four or five small office buildings in an area, then you'll have a lot more mm. pull um, and you'll generate a lot more relationship with with a broker, but it took time to understand that. Yeah, so if someone's thinking about doing like a one-off thing, you wouldn't recommend an office building just because of how you it helps to have that broker relationship and the time that it takes to get that, then you may as well have a few of them so you can kind of... Yeah, I mean, you have to think about it from the broker's perspective. Like if they're going to, if you have like a meaty client who wants to sign for, you know, 2,500 square feet of office, <coughs> are you gonna call the guy that has four other buildings right. um, or you're going to multiple options yeah. those, you know and in an office too and like in multifamily often the leasing broker and the sales broker are the same person mm -hmm. and so if they feel like they're going to have a you know a longer transactional relationship with you then they're more likely to, to send that person your way yeah and i was going to say too if you have like a residential rental and you're just scaling up to commercial the process doesn't really change much you're just taking on more scale that's right yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so you can do that in a more disparate, like you can, more remote kind of environment. You can buy one-offs here and there. It always helps to have relationships, but you can definitely do that. Well, you've dashed my dreams of uh, commercial office space <laughs> at this point, because I never thought of it that way. You know, I thought like I'll get a commercial office space and go get it, you know, go out and go find my own, you know, tenants or whatever. I've never really thought about it that hard because I've heard a lot of people who are in the commercial office space uh, and retail spa space that swear by triple net and they yeah. love it and obviously they love the five-year contracts and everything built in and mm -hmm. not having to worry about it for a while so yeah triple net is great so i think office with triple net is a really lovely environment by the way what what's triple net again <clears throat> oh, for sure. just for our listeners um so uh triple net is 
Um, I'm trying to remember what the You're three like, I'm not ends. in the office space anymore. Uh, three <laughs> ends are going to be your rent, um, insurance, and taxes. So essentially, it's a contract with like, so the things that are like hot on the market right now are Dutch Brothers or CVS or Taco Bell, where you have a brand name who doesn't want to own the dirt that it's on. And so they pay for all the expenses and you just own the land um, that oh, the, the okay. business sits in. So the own the land in the building. Um, so it is a great situation. They, oh, they own the building. You, you own the building. You're leasing them the land, basically. There are some land leases. You own the whole structure. Oh, um, oh okay. They, but they... It's like condo, kind of like they own the inside. Yeah, and they yeah. own, but they pay for everything. Yeah, so yeah, So you yeah. just, okay. you don't have to worry about any expenses. You mm. don't have to worry about any costs at all. They pay for all your costs, and then you just get a coupon. So I think TripleNet is great, especially if you don't want to, like, constantly be you know managing what the renewal rates are going to be and what you're like how much you're paying your like maintenance guy and like it's it does take a lot of the pain and suffering out um i'm a little bit of a control freak and so it's not as appealing for me because yeah. i can't do anything to change it's usually a five or ten year lease and so with a elevator baked into the contract and then that's it at the end of five years you renegotiate and you never know how the market's going to act over the next five years because I mean in the residential space I've seen my rents jump pretty significantly I've adjusted accordingly and when you have that locked in for five years you could be well under market in five years right um, and you also expose <coughs> yourself you get sort of in a relationship with whatever tenant you have so mm -hmm. uh, like mm. um, Dutch Brothers right now is one that I looked at a couple of years ago, and they're expanding really rapidly. They they got bought by private equity and then went public, and so they're expanding really um, widely across the U.S. Um, but if they overexpand, you're stuck with like a drive-through coffee shop, <laughs> you know, in the middle of a parking lot. Um, yeah. That like you have to try to find somebody else. Not to the fill. easiest thing to collateralize. Yeah. <laughs> um, so unless you want to start making your own coffee. Um, you have to find a tenant, and typically tenants, as you might imagine, if you close your eyes and imagine a Dutch Brothers or a Starbucks drive-through, they look very specific, and it's hard to sort of re you know, remodel that into something yeah. that somebody else wants. And I'll say this too about um, like that commercial space, the office space, like you know, that was supposed to be like the the safe tenant, but now all these businesses are shutting down. So that's the scary part about being in that space now, like Bed Bath and Beyond, like. What's going on? They can't even afford to pay their <laughs> their rents now, so all those owners are SOL. Yeah, know? there's a lot. I know there's a lot of. I'm very, I'm so lucky. I sold an office building in Florida in uh, at the end of 2020, um, oh, wow. and I, I happened to have a buyer and a couple of my partners. Right as we were about to close the sale, were like, I don't know if we should go through with this. Like, I don't know if the offer's high enough. And I was like, if you want to buy it from me. That's fine, but I am getting out. Like, <laughs> this is like out. a building on fire. Like I'm leaving. Um, so I I feel very lucky, but um, it uh, I think office has not hit rock bottom yet, but I think it will bounce back. But it's gonna be a it's a it's a long I think it's a long horizon. Can I ask, and mm -hmm. if you're open to sharing, like sure. what types of tenants you had for those office spaces? Oh, that was a. Um, it was sort of like a, it was a one level mixed use office industrial with a, it had a, um, 
loading bay. So that's typically one of the big designators, whether or not you have a loading bay in your in your um, space. And so um, it was a single story. We had a, a hodgepodge. We had the American Red Cross was in there. We had a fabricator of, um, oh, like a fiber optics telecom mm. um, place where they had like a lot of service trucks that would um, sort of come in and out. Uh, and um, we had a call center, like um, actually this was one of the first businesses to go under was a student loan debt collection call center. <laughs> um, so when you know the uh, moratorium of student debt collection yeah. yep. uh, started, yeah. that business uh, went under. They stole all of our toilet paper all the way out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for the whole building. Right at, right, no, yeah. right at that time yeah. when toilet paper was so you were First they were collecting student debts. <laughs> yeah, and then it was toilet paper. Yeah, so, so yeah. you're dealing with more like local small business, not any of these big box chains at that time, no, other no, than no, the Red no. Cross, which I don't know if that really and the, Yeah, I think it was just like a local, local chapter of the Red Cross, yeah. So office space-wise, are you now completely out of that, or do you still have some of it? And I'm, I'm kind of curious if you think that there's any space, like subspace in the office space that is, you know, going to do be successful and viable during recessionary time like that'll trend opposite of the rest of the office space I guess. sure um so i don't i have one building and it's a little bit the only reason why we bought it was because i was sort of tired of paying rent <laughs> for our office mm -hmm. uh so we haven't moved in yet because there was a long lease on their space and we had four years left on our space so we're waiting for the current tenants lease to to um, end and okay. then our lease to end and then we'll move into that space and that way we'll just be owner um, occupied right. um, and that is uh, in Lake Oswego and it's right next to the relatively new Mercado development oh, okay. that's yeah. there mm -hmm. with all the chef's table restaurants mm -hmm. and things um, so it's walkable to all that um, I think uh, I think in the short term I think Suburban office is going to continue to do quite well. Subur specifically, um, like suburban office that has kind of mixed stuff in there, one level. Um, I think all suburban office is going to be okay. Uh -huh. I think um, people are going to downsize uh, as their leases come due, right? So, most you have to think about most office leases are five or 10 years, and now we're coming up to three years after the pandemic. So, mm -hmm. people are going to be downsizing their leases mm -hmm. in the next three to six years um, if they haven't already worked <coughs> their way out of it, right? Defaulted or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I think office is going to see a shrinking. But I think there's going to be new leases to be had and new tenants to be had who are looking for different spaces. I think con suburban across the country is going to continue to do well mm. until um, I think downtown spaces um, are going to sort of glide to the bottom yeah. and then start climbing back up again. I mean, that's because of the people working from home, working remote. I think, yeah, working um, from home as a hybrid is going to become the new norm. Mm -hmm. um, so I think more people are going to start to return to the office. Uh, you know, Houston, Dallas have had the highest rates of return to office, and it's still only like 70 to 75 percent of uh, working hours that have returned to the office space. Yeah. Um, so I think a hybrid is sort of here to stay. Um, but I think uh, 
I think it's going to be a longer time till the downtown spaces where you have, you know, expensive parking and you have, right. yeah. um, you know, a, a lot of our, unfortunately, a lot of our metros are facing some pretty high crime rates right now before people want to make the commute in, make the commute back out. Mm -hmm. um, the suburban spaces where closer to people's homes, I think, will continue to do well. Interesting. Yeah, I always think about, like, I don't know, like fast food or whatever, doing well during recession. But I didn't. I, I never had thought too much about like office space until pandemic time. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting market. I think if you're smarter than me, you'll be able to take advantage of the downturn <coughs> in that space right now. But I'm not smart enough to figure out how to make it work out yet. <laughs> yeah, you got to read a crystal ball and figure out. Yeah. I mean, like the prices are good. I mean, obviously the prices have dropped, but. It's, it's like, are people going to actually rent the space now that it's cheaper? Yeah, you know? and especially right. getting financing on um, this office building, so I think it's going to be really yeah. hard. So, and, I mean, for example, like my Keller Williams office, you know, we actually just gave up half of our office because half the agents stopped coming in. Right. After the pandemic started. They or got come in like, home. yeah, once a week. Once or, or twice a week now. Yeah. yeah. It used to be a full office, and now it's, I mean, it's still pretty empty with half the office. Yeah. Uh, Which is kind away. of interesting, too, because like real estate has always been re remote, you know, like, was, yeah. was there, did you ever need to go into the office? Like, that's, I always thought that was funny how much that changed. Uh, I, I think it's, it's just a pattern that people were used to. And right. once people got used to remote work, then they were just like, wow, I can just do this in my pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been remote for like, five years even before the pandemic so right. i i never wanted to go back and now <laughs> now the whole world basically knows what it's like and if they can do most of their job at home then might as well do that you know yeah so. absolutely <clears throat> oh I, I did want to take a step back mm -hmm. just obviously you're to uh you know residency and you having to take over this space and yes you've heard at, you know heard of about real estate and 1031 exchanges and property management as you know as a child with your your family but how did it feel about taking over this, like switching gears and taking yeah, over this business? It was pretty terrifying. I mean, had I had you done any real estate before that? No, not okay. a not a lick. Wow. Um, so I was a art history major in college, um, and then went to medical school, and I took one econ class because my dad made me, and so <laughs> I um, I really didn't know uh, what I was getting myself into. Um, and at first, I was actually very very concerned about the. Uh, learning and understanding how the finances of a deal would work out um, and um, you know I'm sure a lot of your listeners things are different now there's so many podcasts and like blogs and things out there but at the time uh, it was harder to find content there's not a book to read yeah there's, there's not, not a book a, to read you can't and just I was, like yeah. study and I was coming from the world where like that's all you did right. was read books and find answers and read more books and find more mm -hmm. answers and so there was no multiple choice test um, that I could figure out how to take uh, and so it was really um, that part was tricky because it was a lot about feel um, what sort of what feels right um, mm, and because um, there's no well at least for me there wasn't one metric that you could really hang your hat on right it, you couldn't say I 100% am going to buy this deal if it hits this cap rate, or I'm 100% going to buy this deal if it hits this, um, you know, cash flow number. So because it's all speculation. I mean, that was the other thing that I was really coming to terms with was that mm. pro formas are speculation by nature, and so it's it's almost it's only all your numbers are based on how good your best guess is. Um, mm -hmm. And so it took a lot of time to for me to feel comfortable at that level of uncertainty. Um, and, uh, but I was also, um, 
you know, so lucky because we were coming out of the recession. Even in 2011, people were still sort of, a lot of people had been sort of washed away with the, the great financial crisis. And so um, I was one of the few people that had cash on hand. And at that time, a lot of the stuff that had been in distress was starting to bubble to the surface and come to the um, come to market. So, you know, I look back now, I didn't buy anything for less than a 10 cap, <laughs> which I am so ridiculous to say out loud now. But I mean, I think the first three deals I did were 10 caps. Um, and uh, um, I was able to buy in like downtown Dallas. Like, it's oh, just wow. like, it's sort of. And that was before doing any like remodeling too, Yeah, right? that's These were right. 10 caps, that's but right. you also needed, they were value add 10 caps, right? That's right, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, it was a different time. Um, uh, I'm a runner, and so I always say that it was sort of like, like running straight downhill. Like it was, even if you messed up, you were still doing pretty well, <laughs> which I was very lucky about. So you were able to make a lot of mistakes and still sort of, um, do okay, um, which uh, helped out. Um, but um, yeah, and then what I've learned over time um, is that the numbers are actually relatively easy to digest, and we actually have about 80 employees, um, and that actually takes up the vast majority of my time and brain space and mm. energy now. As people are not as predictable as <laughs> your best guess performance numbers, and so it becomes. Um, uh, a ch that becomes something to work on. Um, more, more hands rolled up, more sleeves rolled up, I should say. Mm. Oh, well, I'm also curious too, because you mentioned like you came in and you're like, we should look at this metric. We should look at the Starbucks metric. H how do you feel your training in medicine also carried over as well in the sense that coming into it with different eyes, different, different, different training. Eyes. <laughs> yeah, different eyes, um, I think there's. Uh, first of all, you know, any physician has to have some amount of data analytics skill oh, yeah. set. Um, and I think that that data analytics and pattern recognition go really far mm -hmm. when it comes to um, uh, analyzing an asset. So I think, um, you know, a lot of stuff was coming on the market then, so much more than now. And we were able to just underwrite and underwrite and underwrite. And when you just have six different assets that are roughly the same asset, you know, roughly the same unit count or roughly the same mm. cap rate, and you can just do side by side by side comparisons, that, um, that's really where my You kind of look skills. at it the same as double blind studies and the p-value is yeah. just lining them <laughs> exactly, up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not, it's just uh, numbers in and numbers out and, you know, um, looking at the data. Um, and so try to be um, as non-emotional about mm. it as possible. But um, that, I think, is probably where I drew the most strength from. Um, but also, I think there's something special about, um, I mean, for all your listeners, there's something special about the novice, right? There's, I forget what, who said it, but there's the problem of the expert, right? Mm -hmm. Where if you know too much, you're going to be too limited. So most people that are entrepreneurs or starting a new startup are not actually experts in their field because... Mm -hmm. If they knew all they were supposed to know, they wouldn't start a company because it would be <laughs> too hard. Um, so, mm. like for one thing, um, you know, adding the Starbucks thing um, that was a big deal. But also, one of the things I always do, just because of the uh, m my personal choices, is I always like to um, 
eat as healthfully as I can when I travel. And so I typically end up going to a grocery store and buying fruit and maybe some yogurt. And what I've discovered is that if I go to the grocery store in the middle of the day, closest to the you know asset that I'm looking at, I learn a lot about the the submarket. I learn mm-hmm. a lot about the people that are there. I even okay. learn a lot about the submarket based on the grocery store itself, like how big is the produce section or how right. big is like the processed food section. <clears throat> so there's some basics. I also am a runner. So if there's ever an asset that I can go for a run after a tour, because there's enough green spacers, there's enough sidewalks or it's safe enough. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also, and I can just take sort of a slower pace approach to looking at a submarket that I don't know very well. That can also be really informative. So just these little things where, you know, nobody, would put that in a book, (laughs) at least I hope not. Um, But like if you can, you know, not discount your own personal experience um, and whatever you can bring to the table, that can be helpful. No, I was gonna mention, I mean, I think what you're describing, like in in the terms of the news, they call it a food desert. Yeah. I don't know if you heard about Mm -hmm. that. That's basically what you described. It's basically an area where, you know, like these businesses don't want to be, they don't want to put their big box chains there because their clientele is not going to be the ones buying all the produce, all the things, so they don't even provide that. Right. And it's very unhealthy for the community. You know, they typically have food deserts where it's a lower income neighborhood, et cetera, so. Yeah, that's absolutely true. If you, you know, the closest store that you have is like a, to your point, like a family dollar, that's mm-hmm. always a red flag. But even still, like I'll go, you can learn a lot, but just like going into the closest target and seeing how tidy the shelves are, like it just can tell you more about what's happening in the submarket than, um, than all the best like co-star reports. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I mean, you can see it with your own eyes, like what's happening in the space. Yeah, and, and like I said, real estate's not all numbers. It's a lot of the intangibles about a feel of the neighborhood. How safe do you feel? Mm-hmm. Do you have things that you want nearby? Um, and I mean, if you were just going off numbers, a lot of people say Texas is not the best place to invest because of high property taxes. I have friends who've legitimately rejected deals because they, they didn't like that, you know, that aspect of it. Some people love Florida. Some people love, I think you mentioned Pennsylvania. Yeah. I mean, I think right now Texas and Florida should not be on anybody's list because the insurance rates are really um, onerous, especially <coughs> the closer you get to the coasts. Um, mm-hmm. We've had probably... Uh, a full 100% increase in our um, in our insurance in the last three years. So from like three years to now, it's gone up. About but you're able to keep your property. I've heard even some people like are having a hard times keeping their property insured in general because their carriers will just keep dropping and yeah, then they'll get forced placed insurance, which is just like crazy expensive. Yeah, I mean, we've had, yes, we have forced placed insurance in one of our properties. Um, I basically pushed the limit that our lenders would allow in terms of our um, deductibles, uh, mm. um, which really burned uh, during the freeze, um, the big freeze in Texas two years ago, oh, because yeah. I sort of was under my reasoning for pushing the premiums was like, well, I have 12 properties. So what's the likelihood that 12 properties are all going to be affected at the same time, <laughs> even if I have one hurricane or one terrible tornado or one terrible storm? Or the um, whole electric grid goes down in the state. But the entire state would freeze. Um, and uh, it basically, um, I hit my deductible at eight of my 12 properties. Oh, my God. Um, so it was, it was, pretty, it was pretty uncomfortable. Um, but no, I think... 
uh, right now in the current plus um, Texas has really become a darling for a lot of investors mm -hmm. um, and so it has pushed cap rates to a point where I, I haven't been able to transact in Texas for a few years now. Interesting. Um, so. I mean, I would say I mean, you were there because your family started investing there first, so you have that experience of that market, so that makes a huge difference, right? I think it does, um, but I also think that you have, like, yes, that it, it helped that they, we already had a pro feeling about it, but we were also in Mississippi and Nevada and Arizona, um, but Texas definitely, was the you know the shining star of the portfolio at that time? So. Was it? Was it? Did you say you pulled out of Mississippi? Yeah, you that's invested right. there. What was the impetus of that? Was it just because of that specific asset wasn't performing? Or there was actually we had, if you can believe it, I had five assets in Mississippi. Okay. <laughs> um, so something close to nine hundred units there at, wow. at one point. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, I just. It was a bit of an intangible thing. I just didn't feel, you know, I would visit it and it felt less and less vibrant mm. with each visit. Um, so yeah, it's not anything, it's embarrassing to say I didn't have like a, it wasn't a, a, a number reason. that triggered yeah. anything. Um, I mean, was so. it causing problems? Were there like lots of delinquencies? There was a handful of assets. You know, it took a little while for the recession to really damage the casino industry. So there was a mm. large riverboat community um, out south of um, Memphis um, and the riverboat casinos um, they stopped a lot of flights um, and people were gambling less. And um, it got to the point where there was a full, I think it was a um, Harrah's, like a full 30-story casino hotel that ended up trading for $2 million. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and uh, unemployment rates just went really high. And we stuck through it um, until the whole market stabilized and unemployment rates came back down. Um, and once I felt like it was not going to be a fire sale, I was like, well, I've ridden this ride. It's now for somebody else to take over. I mean, um, I'm curious, too. Like, it's, is it good to have, a you know, your tenant base being a gambling community, you know? Um, well, you know, it's interesting. I We have previously owned in... Um, uh, Las Vegas mm -hmm. and I've gone back and looked at assets there as well um, it's a funny market like you have to take cash a lot of times um, <laughs> <There's some chips>. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, know. um, you have shift workers I remember asking a broker why there wasn't enough parking and they're like oh nobody's really here at the same time because people work shifts and so right. you don't have to overburden the parking lot um, huh. it's definitely uh, a different space. You have a much higher delinquency rate. You have a much higher rate of skips for people that just disappear. Um, but unlike the riverboats, I think I don't think Vegas is ever, even in the worst recessionary environment, people are still going to gamble. So I don't think it's a bad investment. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. interesting. Yeah. And just as a you know female minority in sort of the top of your of your one of the top positions in your field. What, do you, what is it like going to these conferences? And I mean, I'm sure now it's a little bit different than it was 10, 13 years ago, but how have you kind of like built yourself in that in that crowd? And Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it was, it was pretty scary the first, I shouldn't say scary, that's not true. I went to 
medical school at LA County Hospital and I was surrounded by like gangbangers and yeah <laughs> so it wasn't scary but it was definitely intimidating to show up um you know I still to this day um I would say the investment brokerage market you know in the spaces where I work are is like 95 percent white male the owners are about 95 percent white male and and um uh, I'm typically you know the only person there who's not somebody's date um, and at first it was um, a little bewildering, um, but uh, um, I, you know, I grew up playing sports and my dad was um, a big figure in my life and I've never really been terribly uncomfortable in a room of guys. So mm. um, I sort of got uh, my feet under me and um, I kept my mouth shut and sort of listened to everybody talk, uh, which was, I think, really key when I first started. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then what I think I have the luxury of being a woman is that um, people show their their cards a little bit. People show their hand a little bit sooner than they would mm, if you were. Interesting. Um, so, they're not uh, like as intimidated. Or, yeah, you know, they or like you know, they're if they're willing to work with you yeah, and yeah. more open yeah. and more trustworthy and and more um, willing to like not put you in a box, um, then I think typically, and this isn't always 100% true, they're probably going to be a better business partner for you moving forward. And so... Um, uh, I was very fortunate to form um, a handful of relationships with investment sales brokers and mortgage brokers who were interested and willing to sort of work with me to get um, deals done. Uh, whereas I don't know if I would have had that same selection process as um, as easily mm -hmm. um, without having those like biases. So um, yeah, I'm. I at now I am lucky enough where I don't really attend a lot of the conferences anymore because I've established a lot of relationships mm -hmm. with people mm -hmm. um, and I know the <coughs> brokers that have been more favorable to work with and the brokers that have been you know a little bit squirrely so and I find that that's really um, a, you know a key component to how I do business these days cool and if you were to you know recommend to somebody that was you know, thinking about getting into real estate, whether it's the commercial side in, in, in a capacity like you're in or or just like investing for their first time, what what would you s say to them? Like, where's a good place to start? Um, well, I always tell people that the most boring stuff is the most important place to start, which is the tax, <laughs> the tax information. So, <laughs> you know, the biggest benefit of being a real estate owner really lies in, in how you apply that to your taxes. And so, um, understanding the taxes either in the metro that you're looking in or nationwide I think that that's really important um, but also like when you're thinking about investing and if you wanted to invest with partners for example making sure that you're recognized that like if you do for example a 1031 exchange and you have a partner they're gonna be your partner for a really long time until you're ready to pay those capital gains um, or you can mm. form a tick which is um, another way to sort of like make it a relationship without sort of getting married, um, but um, oh, what's tenants that? in common? Yeah, yeah. Tenants oh, in tenants in common. common. Yeah, yes. yeah, okay. Um, sorry. Uh, so um, you can either form a tick, and then you can sort of separate the tick and uh, and do your own ten thirty one exchanges at the time of sale, mm -hmm. um, or you can form an LLC and do you know own with somebody. But you know if you're 
if your hope and dream is to never pay those capital gains tax, then you're just going to be doing 1031 exchange after 1031 exchange with that partner. So you better want to, you know, hang out with them for like the next 10 or 15 <laughs> years um, because otherwise one of you is going to have to pay the piper um, or both, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I would say that that is something to keep in mind. Um, it seems really straightforward to get together with somebody and just, you know, invest in a property together um, so that you can sort of take it to the next level, but you end up extending the relationship longer than you may originally think okay. or not reaping the benefits of it. Interesting. No, I think you're the first person to talk about taxes, right, as the first thing to think about if you're trying to get started in real estate, which is really important. I mean, that's probably some of your biggest savings personally, yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, I t- the as frustrating sometimes as it is, the uh, two people that probably have the biggest r- return on investment in, that I pay are going to be my accountant and uh, my estate attorney. So that's the other person that you should, you know, make sure that you understand uh, when you're going into this, depending on the stage of life you're in and the family members that you have, like who's going to be the successor do you have? Because presumably one of the benefits of having real estate is that you can own it for a long period of time and appreciate that um, appreciation. But uh, it's really helpful to have um, sort of a, not necessarily a succession plan, but like an idea of how you can benefit from the taxes. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many, like you were mentioning, like looking at the state taxes and then looking at your capital gains taxes and then all the write-offs you can do. And uh, what's, I forgot what it's called. Um, I mean, there's so many aspects in terms of taxes that save you money in terms yeah, of real estate. Depreciation, yeah, there's depreciation. You go on yeah. and on and on. Um, I mean, I really like doing the interior decorating of the leasing offices. So, mm-hmm. like, I'll do my own. I don't hire a decorator. I, like, go to Wayfair and pick out some couches, and that's fun. But uh, really what I need to be spending my time is understanding the tax code. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you – I mean, you. I feel like you got to spend the time on the things that you like and then hire the people that, to do the things that you don't like, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. I have, that's why I have a good CPA, too. I'm just, <laughs> I don't want, and I spend maybe, like – you know, 12 hours with them a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it can be very beneficial. Having an accountant, um, I would say, and then have, understanding the ins and outs. Is, yeah. And if there's any physicians listening that are kind of interested in investing, how do you feel that you've kind of made that transition? I mean, I know you were doing both at the same time. What, what Where's the point where you felt like, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do? I mean, I, you were kind of forced into it a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think there's a lot of people that, that as long as your, as long as your physician life isn't so um, uh, all encompassing. So, so say you're working like a 0.75 FTE, or you don't have as much call, um, mm. then um, I don't think you need to like abandon your practice in order to get started in, in real estate. You can um, do both. You can do both, um, but. Uh, I think a lot of my friends are still physicians, still practicing, and um, they're seeing that maybe they can't foresee themselves keeping up this level of practice, you know, well into their 60s. Mm-hmm. And so having a nest egg and having like a, a small burgeoning portfolio that's throwing off some cash yeah. is a really good way to say I can take what's, you know, the, the beginning blocks of a portfolio that I can then devote more time to once I retire. Hmm. Oh, I love that. That's great. Oh, and if people are looking to get a hold of you, find you on social media, how could they get a hold of you? Um, Sure. You can, uh, well, let's 
so you can email me. Uh, my email is Ashley Hayden at Hayden Properties. So that's P R O P I. I'm not going to spell it. Properties, plural, yeah. <laughs> dot com. Um, uh, or you can go to our website, which is hayden-properties.com and check us out there. Yeah. Great. Well, yeah. hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really you. appreciate your knowledge. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Realized Gains podcast. If you have any questions for our co-hosts or guests, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com.